Tonight is a very important presentation. We're going to be talking about how to live above the crowd, which is an ongoing challenge for God's people. Our amazing fact tonight is really taken from the life of an amazing man. Now, I hope you don't mind if I tell you that uh, Teddy Roosevelt is one of my heroes. He was a Christian, but it's not because he was a, a very humble man. As a matter of fact, he was a very proud man. His daughter says he always wanted to be the corpse at every funeral and the bride at every wedding. He enjoyed being the center of attention. But what I admire about him was his resolve, his determination, his grit. He would make up his mind what was right and he would do it. And once he put his hand to the plow, he would not look back. You've heard of the Panama Canal. You know, the first person who thought about building the Panama Canal was Hernando Cortez. When he looked at that isthmus, he says, you know, we could, set, we could uh, connect the, the Atlantic and the Pacific if we put a canal across here. And it was surveyed, but nothing ever happened. Later, there was another Spanish group that thought about building it and did a little more work on it and, and some more surveying, but they said it's too big a job. Then there was an international company that failed and a French company that went bankrupt. Finally, someone asked the United States if they'd like to buy that little stretch of land when Teddy Roosevelt was president. He said, if we take it on, we will finish it. They had to literally move mountains. Karen and I went through the Panama Canal on our honeymoon, and we'll never forget the staggering amount of work that had to be done with comparatively primitive equipment. Teddy Roosevelt made up his mind when something was right, and he would not give up. One day when he was campaigning for his second term in president, or actually a third term in the Bull Moose Party, he was on his way to deliver a speech. And a crazy lunatic came up to him with a revolver, put it right at his chest, and pulled the trigger. Shot him point blank in the chest. But he had a speech in his pocket he was about to deliver that was all rolled up very thick, plus an extra pair of glasses in a metal case. The bullet went through the glass case, through his speech, good thing for him he had long speeches, <laughs> into his chest. And they wanted to rush him to the hospital. One witness says he was bleeding like a bull moose. He said, I have a speech to deliver and I'm not going to quit until I do it. They could not deter him. He went and delivered his speech, a shortened version. He said, you'll need to excuse me. I've been shot. The people all laughed. He opened up his shirt and exposed all the blood under his jacket. Just was very determined. You know, after he uh, did not get elected to president, he continued to explore the world. He went on a safari for several years in Africa and hunting big game. He lived in the badlands of the Dakota territories in his youth, climbed the Matterhorn. Just a man who was driven to do everything he did with all of his might. And I respect somebody who will not give up. He was a little strange, I'll admit. Uh, dignitaries would come to the White House and he would wrestle and box with them. We don't have presidents like that anymore, do we? But uh, that was the concept of manliness back then. He actually went blind one time because he decided to box a professional boxer and <laughs> blinded one of his eyes and he was already nearly blind in the other. When he was 55 years old, he went down to South America with his son and joined an expedition to explore an uncharted tributary of the Amazon, very treacherous, unexplored territory. Several people died. He came down with malaria, nearly died, and they named the river after him, the Teodoro. All through his life, his motto was, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. When you think something is right, you don't turn back. You know why we have national parks today? Because Teddy Roosevelt saw that we were losing all the beauty of this country. And even though the powerful, rich 
politicians did not want to set aside all this acreage in North America for the poor people. He knew if he didn't do something, it would be lost. And he fought against the rich and the powerful until he was able to set aside these parks like Yosemite and Yellowstone and dozens of others around the country. That's why his face is the last that's etched at Mount Rushmore. Probably the last president that you could say was a man's man, a real adventurer, and not just a politician. I admire and respect people that do not follow the crowd and that do not give up. Amen? I want to be someone who will put my hand to the plow, look at Jesus, and not look back. What do you say, friends? Our lesson tonight comes from that theme, learning how to live above the crowd. And our historical comes to us from the life of one of the most uh, gregarious and extroverted of the apostles. His name was Simon Peter, a man after my own heart in many respects. Peter had the um, habit of having his mouth in gear before his brain was engaged and uh, speaking and then thinking. That's why I'm always grateful that Mrs. Bachelor sits on the front row to edit my sermons as I go along and, and uh, help me make corrections. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee one day and multitudes were following him. He saw four friends that were fishermen that were cleaning their nets. Andrew, Peter, his brother, and James and John. He asked if he could borrow Peter's boat so he could preach to the people without being crushed by the crowd off into the water. And Peter accommodated him. Jesus preached. Then afterward, he said, I see your boat is empty. Why don't you launch out into the deep and let down your nets? They said, Lord, you're a good preacher, probably a fine carpenter, but you don't know anything about fishing. You fish at night. We fished all night. We didn't catch anything. But if you insist, we'll try one more time. So they went out and they let their nets down. And the Bible tells us that the catch of fish was so enormous, the nets began to break. They had to call for their partners, James and John, to come along. And both boats were filled. They had never seen a catch like this at any time in their life. They knew it was a supernatural miracle. Peter, recognizing that he was in the presence of a divine being, fell down before the Lord and said, Lord, you don't know who I am. You better leave. I am a sinful man. You know, that's what the Lord wants us to do. Come and confess our weakness just like we are. Jesus said, don't fear, Peter. From now on, you are going to catch men. You can come with your gifts and your sin just like you are, and the Lord will train you to utilize your gifts in his service. One of Peter's big problems he needed to overcome, he was preoccupied with other people and what they thought of him, more than what God thought of him. He always wanted to know if the crowd was watching him. You remember one time Jesus came walking on the water and the disciples at first were shocked and they cried out and Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's me. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid that I come to you on the water. He said, come. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. Peter stepped out of the boat, fixed his eyes on Jesus and began walking towards Christ. Halfway there, he thought to himself, hey, there's probably not too many people who've walked on water like this except me and Jesus. I wonder if the fellows have the video camera rolling. And he turned around to see if his friends were taking it all in. And when he took his eyes off Jesus, he then noticed the wind and the waves. And his faith began to sink. And he began to sink. And he uttered the shortest prayer in the Bible. You can memorize this one. Lord, save me. It's a complete sentence. Say it with me. Lord, save me. I've used it many times. You may need that someday. As soon as he called out, the Bible says immediately Jesus lifted him up out of the water. He became Christ's most devoted apostle. 
He loved the Lord. Well, of course, John was the beloved disciple. Peter always wanted to be near Jesus. He deeply loved his sincerity. He respected his humility because Peter struggled with pride and worrying about what people thought of him. Always wanted to be by Christ when he was multiplying the bread and the fish and Jesus liked to escort him away after he raised the dead. The Bible tells us the night of the Last Supper when Jesus notified them that tonight one of you is going to forsake me or one of you is going to betray me and you'll all forsake me. Peter said, though all these men forsake you, I will not forsake you. Comparing himself among his friends. And they all said the same thing. Peter did not recognize his own weakness. He was sincere, but he did not know his own heart. I mean, later that night when Judas came with the mob, Peter pulled out his sword. He planned on fighting. You know why? His friends were watching. As long as he had an audience, Peter was very brave. But shortly after that, when all of his friends forsook Jesus and fled, Peter wanted to follow Jesus, but now Jesus was not popular. So the Bible says in Mark chapter 14, he followed from a distance. He followed afar off. Friends, if you're going to follow Jesus, don't follow afar off. You want to be as close as you can possibly be. Otherwise, you may repeat the mistake of Peter if you follow Jesus from a distance. Peter knew that Christ was not popular anymore, and so he did not want to get too close. So when Jesus was led off into the judgment hall, Peter sat outside with the enemies of Christ. Someone recognizing him said, Ha! You're one of his followers. The fellow getting beaten up inside, you follow him? Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen the man before. Now there's a different audience, and he is succumbing to the pressure of the crowd. A little later, servant girl recognized him, said, You've got a Galilean accent, and we know most of his followers are from Galilee. You, surely, I've seen you with them before. And the Bible says he began to curse and to swear. I know not the man. All those words were still in his mental vocabulary, and he was able to recall them in just a moment. That I'll punctuate that I don't follow Jesus by using words that he would never use. And about that time, he denied him a third time. And the Bible says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Did you ever catch that? Jesus was in the judgment hall. The Roman soldiers were putting a bag over his head and beating him and then ripping it off and saying, now tell us, who hit you? And Christ was not thinking about his own physical suffering. He turned and worried about his beloved disciple out there that had just denied him for the third time. And it was not a look of anger or frustration. It was a look of love and forgiveness and compassion. And the Bible says, Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And the Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. Later that day when Christ was crucified, Peter stood afar off. The crowd around Jesus now was mocking and deriding him. Mary Magdalene and his mother were at the foot of the cross. Peter was standing afar off, probably too ashamed to come to Christ. That's why when the angel saw Mary at the tomb and when Jesus had risen from the dead, the angel specifically said, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter thought, I have committed the unpardonable sin. There's no hope for me. And Jesus made sure the angel instructed them, tell Peter that he is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him as he said. There was hope for Peter. Friends, you and I can learn how to get the victory over our pride and over the temptation to please the crowd. You cannot be a child of God if you're manipulated by the crowd. Amen? Let's find out what we can learn from God's Word about these principles by going to question number one. Have you been doing your lessons? I hope that you are going to fill them all out. Even if they're not complete now, you will still receive a blessing as you do them in your homes. Amen? 
And don't forget, you can continue doing these studies through the videotapes if you've missed any of them. That's why we designed them this way. Question number one. How does God determine whether or not we are on his side? Say the answers with me. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that talks about doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus says quite a bit about doing. Christ talks about a father that had two sons and he said, please go work in my field. And one son said, not today, Dad, I've got other plans. But he repented and he later went. The other son said, I'm on my way, Dad, but he never went. And Jesus says the bottom line is, which of the two sons did what their father said? The one who had a pretense but didn't go or the one who said no but then repented and went? The bottom line, Christ said, is the one who did it. The Lord wants us to be doers of the word. Amen? Romans 6.16 Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. We are ultimately the servants of the one we're obeying. If we are obeying the rules of a church, then you better hope that church has a heaven to take you to. If you want to get to heaven, you need to obey God. Amen? Amen. If you're obeying as a government instead of God, as some people have done, you better hope that government has a heaven to take you to. Number two. When the commands of God and men conflict, whom did Peter say we should obey? Answer. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Notice the transformation that came over this apostle that was once so worried about being popular. Now he's surrounded by the Supreme Court in Israel. They said, you better not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. All of us here are telling you not to. And he stood boldly and said, we're going to obey God rather than men. Friends, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot please the crowd and please your maker. And there's a very strong temptation to be preoccupied with what those around us think of us rather than the one that sees our heart and our mind thinks of us. Those in the kingdom will serve God supremely. Amen? Number three, how do we best demonstrate our love for God? By honking your horn, right? Get one of those bumper stickers, if you love Jesus, honk. That means you love Jesus. No, John 8, 31. He says, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And again, John 14, 15. The Lord tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments. He wants us to keep them. 1 John 2, 4. He that says he knows him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, how many commandments would that be? All of them. Because it says in James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble or offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Now, we've learned during this seminar that God is looking for a people in the last days who have the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Do you, mean, do you think that means some of the commandments or all ten of them? God's law has not been abrogated. It has not been annulled. What Jesus wrote with his finger in stone is still intact. You will see it is in heaven someday. That's why he said heaven and earth must pass away before one jot or tittle in any wise passes from the law. And I make no apologies for teaching the commandments, including the Sabbath commandment, because Jesus told me that whosoever therefore shall break the least of these commandments and teach men so, Matthew chapter 5, he'll be spoken of as least in the kingdom of heaven. 
but whoever shall do and teach them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm worried about what he thinks of me and not what the popular world thinks of me. Amen? So, we've learned that there is at least one, and in some places several commandments, that even Christians are turning away from. And it's a very critical thing to do. Number four. According to Jesus, why did the hypocrites act religious? The Bible says in Matthew 6, verse 2, that they may have glory of men. Matthew 6, 5, that they may be seen of men. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount by emphasizing that the scribes and Pharisees did good things but for the wrong reason. Good things for a bad reason. They prayed, that's good. They fasted, that's good. They gave, that's good. But for the wrong reason, he said, you're doing it to be seen of men. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, do it for your Father in heaven and he will reward you openly. Those of us who are acting pious and religious so that people will think that we're holy, that's not get you to heaven because God knows our hearts. Amen? We need to be concerned with what the Lord sees. That's why Jesus said, make sure the inside of the cup is cleaned first. If you went to visit somebody and you asked for a drink of water, and they said, well, I've got two cups here. I've got one that's been cleaned on the inside and one that's been cleaned on the outside, but the inside's dirty. Which one do you want? Which one would you want to drink out of? The one cleaned on the inside, right? And that's the way it is with the Lord. He wants us to come and allow Him to clean the inside because when He cleans the inside, then by God's grace, you'll see a transformation on the outside. Question number five. Is it generally safe to follow the crowd? You know the answer to this. What does the Bible say? Exodus 23, verse 2. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Doesn't matter how popular it is. Now, friends, what does the Bible tell us in the last days? Will it be the majority or the minority that will accept the truth? Will the majority be religious? Yes, they will. You better believe it. Bible says, He causeth all small and great, rich and poor, free and bond to worship. They receive a mark and they must worship. They're all religious. So there's going to be a lot of religious people out there that will be practicing the wrong religion and worshiping the wrong way. That's why we've got to know what does God say. Because religion, sincerity, that doesn't cover our evils. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus declared, Enter ye at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and Many there be that go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Back in Bible times, people typically lived within sight of a fortified city, and they operated their farms and in their ranches not far from a city. And there was a trumpeter on the wall, and if he saw a cloud of dust in the distance of an approaching army, he would trumpet and signal the people that they were to make a beeline for the city, get within its walls where they could be safe. But you know, some of the people said, well, the invading army, they're going to sack and pillage my house, so I'm going to load up my wagon, and I'm going to take all my stuff with me into the city. Those who went on the wide road, it was typically congested, there was no room, and beyond that, they uh, couldn't fit all their stuff in the city gates. But if you went straight up the city wall, most of those cities back then had small entrances that a man could get through, but an army and a horse could never get through. You could not bring your stuff in your backpack. And they could seal those entrances quickly. In the same way, if you would follow Christ, 
you cannot take the broad road and bring all your stuff. We need the straight gate. Amen? First Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Are we to believe that it's many or few? What did Jesus say? In the days of Noah, actually this is Peter, while the ark was being prepared, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Friends, I hope you're not waiting for it to be popular. God's remnant church in the last days is not going to be the socially accepted church. The Bible says that we will be hated of all nations because of our faith. You know, I think it was interesting a couple of years ago. That's been more than that. They had the riots in L.A. Karen and I were in Russia. We were hearing on the news about the L.A. riots. And in Russia, they made it sound like every city in North America was in flames. They really kind of exasperated what was going on. When we got back, we thought it was interesting that the defense of some of these gang members that were taking innocent civilians, dragging them out of their cars and beating them up. You know what the defense was? They said, we're not responsible because there was a crowd mentality that came over everybody. Do you think the Lord's going to accept that defense when you stand before him in the judgment day? Sorry, Lord, I lost my free will because there was a crowd mentality and I was caught up in the enthusiasm of beating innocent people. You cannot do that with the Lord. You cannot follow the crowd. Number six, how does Jesus feel when we put the traditions of men before the commandments of God? Mark 7, 7 and verse 9. Howbeit Christ said, in vain do they worship me. Wait a second. Does it matter how we worship God? Is it possible to worship God in vain if we put traditions of men ahead of the commandments of God? Look at what that verse says. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines something that's nothing more than the commandments of men. Now, I don't want to offend you, but the fact remains that I've been here 26 meetings now. I've invited anybody to produce a scripture where we are commanded to worship on the first day of the week or Sunday, and I've not had any takers yet. There have been a couple of ambiguous references to places where the disciples did things on, on the first day of the week, but Jesus did things on many days of the week that are recorded in the Bible. Nowhere is it said that it's the new Sabbath that we should keep holy. Am I right? And so there's a whole lot of people out there that are worshiping God in vain, thinking they're keeping the commandments of God, but it's the doctrines of men. And we've got to find out what the commandments of God are and go by that. Am I right? And he said unto them, full well you reject the commandments of God that you may keep your own tradition. A lot of people out there are saying, but Doug, uh, you know, there's so many people doing it. I've got news for you. If there are six billion people in the world today, and if five billion, nine hundred ninety-nine million of them all get together and vote and decide to change one of God's commandments, the vote doesn't count. Because God has the veto pen for those votes. Amen? Doesn't mean a thing what the world does. We've got to go by what God says in His Word. And the Lord is not wishy-washy. When He speaks audibly, when He writes in stone, and He blesses something, it's blessed forever. Amen? Number seven. Will true Christianity be popular in the last days? Christ has warned us, if you want to be a real Christian, you need to brace yourself because you're going to meet with opposition. Matthew 24, verse 9. Jesus said, you will be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Is he worth it, friends? That means that everywhere you go, if you really live the Christian life, you're going to meet with opposition. Because you will be a threat to the devil and he will oppose you. 
You know, I wish I had time to just stop and tell you about all the different obstacles we have run into through the course of this meeting. We've had to spend a lot of time on our knees because the devil has fought us every step of the way. And I'm just praising God that we have more people in our meeting, our closing nights, than our opening nights. It's evidence to me of God's victory over all these obstacles. Amen? Amen. And to Him be the glory. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But the devil will oppose you every step of the way. 2 Timothy 3.12. It says there, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, why don't we have more persecution in places like the United States? You know why? There's not very much godly living. Matter of fact, I've often wondered if we ought to pray for trial and persecution that it would stimulate some more godly living, right? We might be praying the wrong prayers. We're praying for peace and prosperity. We ought to say, Lord, send a famine. That's what Elijah did and it brought a revival. Am I right? You start living godly, you'll see more persecution. If we would be more of a threat to the devil, the fires of persecution will be rekindled. The Bible says in Revelation 12, 17, and the dragon, who's that? The devil was wroth, infuriated with the woman, and he goes to make war, that's the battle of Armageddon, with the remnant of her seed that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. This is just on the horizon right over the next hill, friends. Furthermore, Revelation 13:5, the Lord tells us in prophecy, the beast power will cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. I don't know what you think, but I think that's pretty serious. Now, you can expect that if you take your stand for the truth, people are going to call you a cult. They're going to call you bizarre. I, there's all kinds of strange rumors floating around out there. Seventh-day Adventists sacrifice chickens, and I don't know. You know, if the people think that we have green antenna or something and don't know that we're just Bible-believing people. And uh, there'll be a lot of misconceptions. You will be falsely accused. You know, back in the days of Nero, Nero wanted to use the Christians as a scapegoat because the people were very dissatisfied with his government. So you know what he said? The Christians, during their communion service, they said, this grape juice and this bread is a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. Nero took that and said, Christians are cannibals. They go into the catacombs and they eat human flesh. And that spread all throughout Rome. And that made them feel more justified when they saw the Christians being torn from limb to limb in the Colosseums. Because they said, well, they're, you know, they're cannibals. What do you expect? That wasn't true. The devil is a master of false advertising. Am, am I right? Number eight. Is it possible to serve both God and the crowd? No, Jesus tells us very clearly, friends. What does it say? No man can serve two masters. You know, one time someone came to Benjamin Franklin. They asked him for a scripture that proved that a man could not have more than one wife. And he quoted this. No man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold one and despise the other. Now, during World War II and World War I, Switzerland was neutral. They said, we don't want to get involved. We've got the banks. Be nice to us. And everyone left Switzerland alone. They were neutral territory. I've got some sad news for you. In the battle between Christ and Satan, there is no Switzerland. If you're not with him, you are on the devil's side, friends. If you're not on the winning team, you're on the losing team. There's no middle ground. And you might say, well, I don't want to make a decision right now. By saying, I don't want to make a decision now, you're making a decision. You're staying on the devil's side. And you make yourself an adversary of the one who died to save you. Matthew 13, 20. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. 
Those are our choices, friends. We are with Christ or against Christ. And after all He's done to save me, I don't want to be against Him. Number nine. Is it safe to love friend or family member more than Jesus? No. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, what is Christ saying? Is He telling us we're not supposed to love our children? No, we're supposed to love Him supremely more. Luke 14, 26. If any man comes to me and hate not, and that word hate there means to love less dearly, his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brethren and his sisters, yea, his own life also cannot be my disciple. We need to love the giver more than the gift. Am I right? Some people think, well, Doug, I want to take a stand. I want to join the remnant church. I want to be baptized, but... I'm waiting for my family. I, they need time to adjust and to accept. I'm waiting for my husband, my wife to come along. The best thing you can do for the ones you love is to put God first. Because if you procrastinate, you're sending a message to them that it's really not that urgent. It's not that important. If you want to really show love for your children, then you put Christ first. You sense the urgency. They will sense that. Whatever decisions you make will ultimately react in those around you. You're going to take people to heaven or to hell with you by your example, friends. And it's so much more important that you love the one who gave you your children, your spouse, your family, than loving them supremely. I know a sister who kept procrastinating. She learned the Sabbath truth and, and uh, wanted to take a stand and said, you know, my husband, and you know, I need to submit to him. And uh, you don't submit to your husband when it means violating the commandments of God. He wants me to go out with him on the Sabbath day, and she kept putting him first. One day I got a call, and they said, can you please come? My husband's in the hospital in critical condition. Had an accident at work, and he was on his deathbed. And she was sobbing and said, I know the Lord has told me that I was loving him more than God, and he's on the verge of taking him away from me. Please pray for my husband, and I promise I'll put God first. It's a dangerous thing to put somebody ahead of God, friends. Jesus says further, Matthew 12, verse 50. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, when you start talking about loving God more than your immediate family, that's pretty close. But I seem to remember Jesus saying somewhere that you're better off entering heaven without an eye or a hand or a foot than going into the lake of fire complete with all your members. Sometimes you need to make some very painful sacrifices when it comes to following Jesus. Jesus warned us, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. That means that there is some self-denial, there's a self-crucifixion involved. That's why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Her story of a young boy who went out with his dad one day. A bear was pestering their ranch. And the father went out in the woods with his son to set one of these massive bear traps. They chained it firmly between two trees by a creek right on the trail where the bear was in the habit of passing. Covered it up with leaves, set some bait on it and covered it all up to disguise it. Father said to the boy, now don't fool with this trap. I'll come back in a couple days and we'll check it. And the boy was so fascinated to find out if they were going to catch a bear. The next day he could not resist. The boy went back out to where the trap was and the trap was gone. He thought. The wind had been blowing the leaves around and things looked like they'd been moved. And he thought the, the bear took the trap and ran off. He couldn't see it. 
And so he took a stick and began to brush the leaves aside to see if the trap was there, and he unintentionally triggered the trap. Pulled his hand away as fast as he could, but it snapped down on his index finger. He moaned and howled, you know, bear traps, the, the jaws are as big as my arms, they're massive. He screamed and howled, the thing squashed his finger. Nobody could hear him. The ranch was oh, half a mile away. And he moaned and he wept and he waited. Pretty soon the sky grew dark and it started raining. And then it started pouring. The boy realized that uh, no one was going to hear him and he was just praying someone would eventually come looking for him, but no one knew where he went. Then the water at the creek by the trap began to rise higher and higher. Pretty soon it was around his ankles, then up around his knees, and it was coming up fast. And the boy, 11 years old, knew if he didn't do something drastic, he was going to drown. He made a very difficult, painful decision, but a necessary one. Took out his Boy Scout's knife, and he had to cut off his own finger, going through the bone, to save his life. Did he do the right thing? Yes. He did the right thing. Was it easy? It was hard. This is the language that Jesus uses when he says, if you're going to follow me, it's going to require putting me first. You must sell all to get that pearl of great price. Amen? You need to sell everything to get that field with the treasure in it. Some of you are struggling. You're thinking, Doug, I'd like to join the remnant church. I'd like to be baptized, but I'm not quite ready to give up my cigarettes. That's right. There's some people. They'd rather have a filter king than the king of kings. Some people would rather have a string of pearls than the pearl of great price. Amen? A lot of people are willing to sacrifice eternal life. They're not willing to cut. Some people are saying, Doug, I'd like to follow you, but God knows I need to take care of my family. And if I keep the Sabbath truth, I'm going to lose my job. Well, pardon me, friends. I know that's difficult. I've been there and been through that. But you're going to meet people in heaven who lost their lives rather than disobey Jesus. We need to love him so much because he laid down his life to cover our disobedience. Will we continue in sin, knowing that it grieves him, that it wounds him? If you love him, you must be willing to make any sacrifice. And you will be blessed if you do. Don't forget that. The blessing outweighs the sacrifice. Number ten. Is it wise to put a prosperous career or earthly treasures before Jesus? What does the Bible say? Matthew chapter 26 Verse, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? A lot of my immediate family thinks I'm stark raving mad. Because my father is virtually a billionaire living in Miami. And uh, I'm bebopping around the country preaching and I get a pastor's salary. And they said, you know, you need to be down there, you need to be working for him, you need to be close and think of how you can help God's work. A lot of people, Christians, tell me, you ought to go work for your dad for a few years and when you get a few million dollars, then you can help God's work. And you can help my ministry. They'll say, that's right. I know that God's called me to preach the gospel. If I do that, I know my weaknesses, I would be lost. I'm not bragging about it, but I could not live in that environment. One way that I stay close to the Lord is I stay actively engaged in sharing Jesus with others. I'm doing this partly for selfish reasons, friends. It keeps me in the Word. It keeps me close. And it's invigorating for me to see people come to the Lord. I'm a mess just like you. This is just my calling. And by God's grace, I love preaching because I do it anyway. They pay me for it. <laughs> Number Luke 12, 15. The Bible says, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. You know, my heart yearns over a lot of our young people. I visit at the schools 
And I say, what are your plans? And so many of the young people, even at Christian schools, their plans revolve around what career is going to pay the best. Instead of saying, how can I best serve God and my fellow man, which used to be the pattern, now they want to know what will have the best job opportunities, the best retirement, what will give me the quickest raises and most power to buy a new house and a fancy car. And, and oh, I think these, they don't know. I've been there and done that too. And happiness does not come from the abundance of things. Happiness comes from knowing that you're on your way to glory, that you're going to live forever, that there's a plan for your life. Because you ask these people with all these possessions. I know some that have killed themselves. It doesn't bring happiness. You know, when I lived in Florida, they have greyhound races there. And uh, one day I heard a story that during a race, you know, they open the hatch and these dogs are trained all their lives to follow after a mechanical bunny rabbit. They're never intended to catch it. And they run with all their heart and soul to catch this mechanical rabbit. One day, it had rained at one of these tracks there in Florida, and the grass was laying across this little electric track where the electrical bunny runs on a rail. Halfway through the race, everybody's cheering, and the dogs are yapping full bore. The rabbit went across this wet grass, and it caused a short, and the bunny blew up. And all these poor, skinny little anorexic greyhounds were wandering around nervously because they lost their goal. They didn't know what to do anymore. Some people spend their whole lives chasing after these dreams that they're never going to attain because happiness doesn't consist. As soon as you think you've got everything, you'll find out you don't. And you'll want that and you're dissatisfied. I also heard about a greyhound race one time where a real rabbit bounded across the track and one dog looked at the mechanical rabbit. He looked at the real one. He said, forget that. And he went off after the real rabbit. Never saw him again. Number 11. Is it safe to continue disobeying God's will after he's shown us the truth? Very disastrous, friends. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, wait, you're thinking that doesn't sound fair. Keep reading. Not just because of lack of knowledge, but because you have rejected the knowledge. Oh, my heart is yearning over people who've sat night after night in the seminar. You've heard the truth and you're holding off. The Bible says if you reject knowledge... I will also reject thee. Seeing that you have forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. It will not only affect you, it will affect those around you. Friends, for your sake, for the sake of God's glory, for your loved ones, surrender to Jesus and follow him. Don't follow the crowd. Don't worry about pleasing the world. The world is not going to make you happy anyway. Number, or Hebrews 10 verse 26 for if we continue to sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. That's why it's so important that we do something about what we've learned. Number 12. What will happen to those who persist in rejecting the truth? It's very devastating. The answer is 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish... Because they receive not the love of the truth. Now, wait a second. What's one of Jesus' names? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you need to receive a love of the truth. When you love Jesus, obeying his word will be so much easier. That they might be saved. And for this cause, because they do not receive a love of the truth, for this cause, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they might be damned 
who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Are you aware that people in the last days who persecute God's children will ultimately get to the place where they're very sincere because they've rejected the truth, they will become convinced that the lie is genuine. You've met those people before, haven't you? They're very sincere that these ridiculous theories are true and they think their sincerity makes them true. John 3.19, it tells us, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because Abel was bad or because Cain was evil? Why did the religious leaders crucify Jesus? Because of Jesus' badness or because of his goodness? The light of his goodness made the darkness of their badness stand out in stark contrast and it convicted them. So they needed to put out the light. And that's why they crucified Christ. Number 13. Will those who persecute God's people in the last days believe they're doing the right thing? Oh, they'll be very sincere. Those who follow the beast and receive his mark will be very sincere. And I need to tell you, friends, their arguments will be very compelling, very convincing. They're going to make all of those who take a stand for God's truth feel like that we are outcasts and we're, we're um, ignorant and, and uh, bizarre extremists, fanatics. And you're going to feel that way. That's why Jesus said, if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. We need a faith that will be built on the rock. It says in... Um, John 16:2 Yea the time is coming that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. They'll be sincere just like Paul when he was out killing Christians. Number 14. How did Peter describe those who have learned the truth but refuse to follow it? 2 Peter 2:21 and 22. For it had been better for them to have not known the way of, of righteousness than after they've known it to Turn from the Holy Commandment. Oh, friends, if you've heard the truth, don't turn from the Holy Commandment. Amen? You know, there's one commandment that God calls holy in particular. It's the Sabbath day. There's one that He says to remember. It's the Sabbath day. There's one commandment that He tells us is a sign and a token of His creative, redemptive power. It's the Sabbath day. And yet there are people who say they love the Lord, they love the Bible, that are turning away from the Holy Commandment. That holy day. But it happened to them, according to the true proverb, the dog has returned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. The very graphic language Peter uses to describe this. You know, friends, what profit is it if you have all the trappings of religion, if you don't have the peace in your heart that comes from knowing you're doing God's will? You know, I remember having a car one time, brand new car, but a mouse moved into the car. Matt moved into the ventilation system, and then I accidentally cooked the mouse turning the heater on one day. Found out it wasn't a mouse, but he had set up a home, and there was a whole family of mice in there. They died and began to decompose in the remote recesses of my brand new car. Remember one time, I couldn't use my air conditioner, my ventilation system. John and I were doing some meetings in Vallejo, California. And he said, let's take your car. So we hopped in my car. We're driving along that summer day. He wondered why this new car, I'm not using my air conditioning. So without asking my permission, he reached over and turned the fan on high, pressed the air conditioner. Oh, something terrible happened. All of this mouse nest and mummified mouse and mouse droppings began to blow out in the cab of the car in hurricane velocity with this overwhelming stench. You should have seen the look on John's face. From then on, when we went to visit, he said, let's take my car. 
here I had this brand new car, cruise control, power windows, new paint, magnesium rims, and it stunk because there was something dead inside. That's what sin will do to your lives, friend. We need to allow the Lord to wash us from those things. Number 15, does following Jesus involve some struggle and self-denial? Absolutely. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Number 16, is it safe to procrastinate or postpone that decision? So this is not in the lesson, but I wanted to show it to you. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do we have to put up a battle? Now, you want a pet snake, someone asked? There you have one. <laughs> Some people want the devil to be their pet snake. You got to resist the devil. There's a struggle involved and he'll flee from you. Thank you. Number 16. Is it safe to procrastinate or postpone this decision to follow Jesus? Hebrews 4 verse 7. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews 2 verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You may have heard that story about the parable where the devil gathers all of his demons. And they come before him. He says, I need some effective plot to ensnare human beings. And one demon jumped up and he said, tell them the Bible's not true. The devil said, oh, we've done that. It's got limited success. Something better. Another demon jumped up and said, tell them there's no God. The devil said, well, I've tried that too, but there's so much evidence of God. Another demon jumped up and said, tell them God doesn't care about them. They've gone too far. The devil said, that works too, but I need, I need something great. One by one they came, and then finally a demon with a diabolical grin said, Lucifer, I've got it. Tell them there's a God. Tell them to go to church. Tell them that the Lord loves them. Tell them to give their hearts to the Lord tomorrow. Don't do anything right now. They've got plenty of time. And as the legend goes, satanic smiles snarled a crown around the devil's face. And he said, that's it. And that is going to be the design that will fill hell to bursting capacity, friends. Procrastination. Now, if God is speaking to you, do not wait until the intensity of the spirit from this meeting disappears. Make your decision now, friends. Amen. Number 17. What benefits come as a result of accepting and following the truth? Psalm 119, 165, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing will offend them. Then in Job 8, verse 32, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then 1 Peter 1, 22, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. You'll be free, you'll have peace for all these things. Finally, number 18. What question did Jesus ask Peter three times? John 21, 17. He said unto them the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? What needs to be the motive, friends? It needs to be because we love the Lord. Story I like to share about a father who was sailing through the warm Caribbean water with his two teenage boys. And one day he told them, be careful not to play near the edge of the boat. We're going through some shark infested waters. Well, the boys soon fought, forgot what their father had warned them. They began to wrestle and chase each other around the boat. One began to lose his balance. He grabbed his brother's t-shirt and they both fell off into the warm Caribbean water as the boat slipped on by. 
They were good swimmers. They began to shout for their dad who came up below the deck and he saw that the boat was leaving his sons behind. He dropped the sail and he encouraged them to swim back to the boat. Well, they were out there blaming each other and dunking each other. And then the father noticed dark shadows beneath the surface beginning to circle his sons. And the father said, boys, I see sharks. Swim quickly and calmly back to the boat. Well, they looked around and they saw no dorsal fins cutting the water. They'd watched too much TV. One of the brothers said, I haven't seen these sharks in days. Dad's trying to scare us to teach us a lesson. So they said, shark, shark, help. And they began to mock their father. They continued to splash and to wrestle to show they weren't afraid. And the sharks continued to close their circle. The father understands the nature of sharks. And he told those boys, now, now, come to the boat. They hesitated. He threw them a life preserver. They said, we don't need that, Dad. We can get there on our own. Finally, in a def desperate effort to save the boys, the father took a knife from the galley. He cut his wrists. He dove in the water and he swam away from the boat. The water began to boil and churn red off in this other direction. And the question is, now that the father's given his life to create a means for the boys to get back to the boat, he's shown his love. What more can he do? If they choose to remain in the water, friends, my plea to you is that you'll make a decision right now to come to Jesus. Father in heaven, please give these folks who are still in the valley of decision the grace, the courage, not to follow the crowd, but to love Jesus more, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I pray they'll make that decision this very moment with the power of your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.